dumped into a clearing in the forest, and the two of them were fast asleep in each other's arms. This is hell. I'm not too sure how much of the story you were playing before we went on air is actually going to be heard over the air on any of the radio stations that carry us, but Dan, what very, the very hell, well. what, were you, what were you playing before I came in here? That's my dinner with Andre, man. Oh, was it? Really? It's hard to pick out a movie when you're just listening to the sound instead of actually seeing the picture. There's some truth to that. Uh, Chakotay is in that from Star Trek Next Generation. What? Playing what? <laughs> Do you, are we thinking there's, there's Wallace Shawn and yeah. Andre Gregory talking to each other for there's, two hours? Where does a Star Trek I think there, get I in? think there's a peri- a very short moment where he shows up. Very, <laughs> it's under a table. Very short moment where he shows up. I'm All pretty right. sure. I'm gonna, I'll have I to double check. I'll have to double check it now. Now it's driving me crazy. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people. This is hell, and this is the penultimate, the last but one, the second to last episode of the Best of This Is Hell 2022 edition, your favorite interviews from the past year, which we are playing in no particular order. The next conversation we will be sharing in just a few minutes is with organizer and author and L.A. Tenants Union co-founder Tracy Rosenthal, who wrote the New Republic article, Inside L.A.'s Homeless Industrial Complex. Tracy argues that homelessness and the unhoused are not the result of failed housing policies by government, as well as those in the private and ostensibly nonprofit sector. Homelessness and the unhoused uh, are instead, Tracy argues, not a mistake from policies. The homelessness and life as an unhoused person is exactly how the private-public partnership on housing policy, that's exactly how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to create homeless people. As long as the liberal idea of every policy needing to be profitable in order for it to be implemented, that's the only way that you can fix the world is by creating profits, then there will be things like LA's homeless industrial complex. As Tracy explained, just 7% of the people in Los Angeles's Echo Park encampment found permanent housing after it was cleared. Almost half of those people are missing. Seven are dead. That's not a failure of homelessness policy. It's an example of the system working exactly as intended. This was not the only time we had a discussion on the homeless industrial complex in the Los Angeles area in 2022. Some of you may also remember our February talk with Deanira Navarez Martinez, who was on to talk about her radical housing journal study, Homelessness in Southern California, Street-Level Encounters with the State and the Structural Violence of of performative productivity while commending those working to help the homeless on the street level. Deanira also described how their work can become performative, that is, giving the appearance of fighting homelessness, but within a system that rewards LA's homeless industrial complex, a complex that is not made to benefit the homeless, but to give the appearance that something, anything, is being done, that the city is actually being humane when, in fact, it is not. In turn, this performance gives legal cover for the police to sweep in, as they did in Echo Park, violently attack homeless encampments to enforce real estate demands for profits from interim housing for the uh, homeless, 
housing that is not only inadequate, but has been dubbed carceral housing by homeless activists and the unhoused who are refusing to be improperly housed by the state. Under small-L liberalism and its steroid-fueled partner, capital N neoliberalism, even homelessness becomes a profitable racket, turning the unhoused into a commodity. Just a quick personal note on today's interview that we will be playing in a few. Last year, as many of you may know, because I talked about it on the show, ad nauseum. Jeez, I wouldn't stop talking about it. I had an emergency surgery, an emergency medical procedure, which did not work, followed by an emergency surgery, which supposedly did work, operations from which I'm still recovering. My condition was so serious I could not do the show for nearly three months. Dan Hill, today's producer, was the in-studio producer for the upcoming interview we will be playing with Tracy Rosenthal, which we streamed live on May 24th, 2022. This was our second interview after I returned from being out sick. It had been nearly three months since Dan and I had done a show together as I was laid up in the hospital for over two weeks. The operation was so intense that after returning home, I could not get out of bed for another two weeks. I then spent most of the next month between my bed and the living room couch as that's as far as I could go and was trying to regain the ability to walk, which I had lost due to significant weight and muscle loss from the many medical procedures I'd gone through. Throughout that time, I could not wait to get back to the show, to get back here in the studio. And to be honest, I rushed myself. I had done one show the week prior to our conversation with Tracy and was certain I could do all three shows and the Patreon podcast the next week. But the day before talking to Tracy, I woke up and could not get, get, get out of bed again with horrible back pain, which is typical for someone who is recuperating from what I still am recuperating from, back pain that I still experience on a daily basis. So thanks to everyone for all of your support for the show during the almost three months I was out. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing, Seb, Lindsay, Alex, and Richard for doing a fantastic job keeping the show alive while I could not be here. And special thanks to every subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon. We truly appreciate your support. I can't thank you all enough for everything you did for the show over the year of 2022 without you. Remember, there is no This Is Hell. I also have an apology. As a listener, emailed us during the very beginning of my health crisis, and I never got around to sharing it on air. But I'll get to that in a bit. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, again, thanks for being here in 2022 when I could not. Uh, how were your holidays? Did you actually get down to Urbana-Champagne? Yeah, I got, I got down there twice. Two, no kidding. Two separate incidents. Wow, so two weekends in a row? Yep, I went down for Christmas, and the week after, I went down to visit my my good friend's little son, Emil. He's a uh, personable. How old is he? About seventeen months. Oh, crazy! Little, uh, uh, frontal cortex is firing and sweet. growing. Yeah, he's a sweet boy. So, what'd you do for New Year's? What did we? Do? Oh, we had some friends over, which is uncharacteristic, and we uh, went down to the lake. Some people were uh, setting off. Uh, Chinese lanterns off into the air. It was romantic. It was nice. I love doing that. I love those Chinese lanterns when they mm-hmm. float into the air, except yeah. when I'm up north and I see them flying into a forest. Yeah, that's that's not desirable. <laughs> that's not desirable whatsoever. Yeah. I always feel like I'm just about to uh, kill Smokey the Bear. <laughs> I saw a poster of him just ripped like he had been <laughs> benching or something. That's not how I want my Smokey the Bear. There's something in the woods out there that we, so. we don't know about yeah. yet. I think it's a yet another pandemic and uh, 
Smokey's the first one who got it, and the pandemic makes you all super ripped. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Cool. That's a rumor I'd like to start spreading. Would you like to help me with that? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my part <laughs> now you. that I've got my Facebook page going. <laughs> oh, good Lord, dude. Like I'm an honorary boomer. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> I saw your uh, your uh, whole collection of one friend. Yeah. <laughs> when you sent me your friend request, I wasn't too sure if it was the best possible spam I ever got that somebody was giving me a virus <laughs> no. or it was actually you. It's a banner year for me. You've increased my friend count by 50%. <laughs> it's a huge one. If it goes like this for the rest of the year, who knows how many millions of followers you'll have. Yeah, asymptotic. <laughs> really? Yeah. Ex- I, exponential. I see. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Oh, sure. This week's question from hell is, we rarely fulfill our New Year's resolutions. We never actually do what we say we're determined to do. So what did you do in 2022 that you've resolved not to do in 2023? Have you got an answer yet? I'll think on it. All right. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Now a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, Our sponsor is you. And again, my apologies to listener Alex who sent us this email back on March 3rd, three days before I was rushed to the emergency room. And somehow, somehow, I don't know how, I mean, I was being rushed to the emergency room at that moment. Somehow I overlooked Alex's email. So I apologize, listener Alex. Alex writes, I'm a huge fan of the show. Probably not anymore because I'm not reading his emails on the air. I'm a huge fan of the show and have been listening for a few years now. You've been essential listening throughout the pandemic, and This Is Hell has to be the podcast I share most often with friends and colleagues. Every time I've had ideas for topics or guests, I've dropped it or forgotten, but I feel compelled this time. For a while, I've been hoping This Is Hell could cover the legislative and cultural assault against trans youth in the United States. And now that things are ratcheting up massively, it feels of urgent necessity to talk about it. Some possible guest suggestions include Jules Gill Peterson, associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins University and author of the 2018 book, Histories of the Transgender Child, the first book to shatter the widespread myth that transgender children are a brand new generation in the 21st century. She brings a a useful historical lens to contemporary debates as well as critical perspectives from trans of color theory. So just as an aside real quick, um, often people who have written a book like this book that was written in 2018, Histories of the Transgender Child, they, you know, tour for the book in 2018, maybe even up till 2019. And after that, they don't want to talk about it anymore. All they want to talk about is their more, you know, recent writing. So I'm not too sure if Jules would be willing to come on the show or not. We'll try. But often when it's an older book, people aren't interested in coming on the show. But it is a great suggestion. And Alex will definitely try. Alex continues, recent articles by her include the anti-trans lobby's real agenda in Jewish currents and We the Abuser State on her substack at sadbrowngirl.substack.com. So we'll check out her more recent writing and see if she'd be willing to come on the show to talk about that. 
Alex also suggests Melissa Gira Grant is a journalist and author and documentary filmmaker. As a staff writer for The New Republic, she has been covering the, this anti-trans legislative wave. Articles include the right-wing war on trans youth has was hiding in plain sight behind the GOP strategy to outlaw trans youth, and Texas's attorney general is laying the groundwork to separate trans kids from their families. And we've actually talked to Melissa in the past. We'll get to that in a couple seconds. Also, Alex suggests, Chase Strangio, a staff attorney at the ACLU and deputy director for Transgender Justice, ACLU, LGBTQ, and HIV Project. He would be expertly familiar with the in and outs of the legislative assault. He recently wrote, Texas wants to take trans kids from their supportive parents. We're suing for the ACLU blog. There might be other great people to talk to, but this seems like a good start. Even if you are unable to book a guest, Chuck, I hope you can point people to this important topic and the people covering it. In solidarity with the trans and gender diverse young people weathering this storm, Alex in Tucson, Antohono O'odham land. Thanks for listening, Alex. Uh, hat tip for recognizing the land you live upon, and special thanks for sharing our show with your friends and colleagues. But has anybody else noticed we get a, got a lot of new listeners due to the pandemic? We mentioned listener Gregory Kay earlier this week and how he also found us during the pandemic. And they're far from the first two people who have written to us to tell us they found us during the pandemic. I, I guess it makes sense that during a pandemic, people may seek out shows called things like This Is Hell. Uh, again, Alex, your guest suggestions are great. This is a topic that we have not discussed in a while. I think it's actually been five years since we touched on the subject, and that was back in 2017 when we talked to Laura Erickson Scroth and Laura A. Jacobs about their book, You're in the Wrong Bathroom, and 20 other myth and misconceptions about transgender and gender nonconforming people, which was chosen by listeners as one of their favorite interviews of 2017. Again, you can go to our website right now and just search on uh, Laura's last name, Jacobs. That's an easy one to search on. Uh, Jacobs and find the, the interview that we did with her and Laura Erickson Schroth. Also, Alex mentions, as I said, Melissa Gira Grant as a possible guest. Melissa was on the show back in 2014 to talk about her then-just-published book, Playing the Whore, the Work of Sex Work. So we're checking to see if we have shared that 2014 interview on Patreon yet. And if we have not, uh, that will be this week's featured interview that you can only hear exclusively on Patreon if you become a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. And in fact, right before today's show, I found out that we have not played that on Patreon in the past, so we will be playing our 2014 interview with Melissa Gira Grant this Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Again, the name of her book is Playing the Whore, the Work of Sex Work. Thanks again, Alex and Tucson, and we'll definitely follow up on all of your guest suggestions. If you, we have uh, Alex's suggested guest or guests on air, we will thank Alex personally during that interview. You, too, can email us, message us via Facebook, or DM us by way of Twitter. And if you do, we'll likely read whatever you write to us on air. And if we have your suggested guest or guests on the show, we will personally thank you as well. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible horrible business model this is hell and now chosen by our listeners as one of the best interviews of 2022 to be featured here on this is hell last year our may interview with tracy rosenthal on los angeles's homeless industrial complex 
You are here, and this is hell. So some of you may remember back in early February, before I became incredibly ill, when we were fortunate enough to have a discussion with Deanira Navarez Martinez, whose research focuses on the role of the state in homelessness and housing precarity and informality. Deanira was on the show to talk about her radical housing journal study, Homelessness in Southern California, street-level encounters with the state, and the structural violence of performative productivity. While commending those working to help the homeless on the street level, she also described how their work can become performative, that is, giving the appearance of fighting homelessness, but within a system that rewards what our guest today sees as L.A.'s homeless industrial complex, a complex that is not made to benefit the homeless in any way, but to give the appearance that something is being done about homelessness, that the city is being humane. This gives legal cover for the police to sweep in violently attacked homeless encampments, all while doing the bidding of real estate concerns who profit from interim housing for the homeless that is not only inadequate, but has been dubbed carceral housing by homeless activists who are refusing to be improperly housed by the state. In a few minutes, we'll continue our conversation on the unhoused when we speak with organizer and author Tracy Rosenthal, who wrote the New Republic article, Inside L.A.'s Homeless Industrial Complex, just 7% of the people in Los Angeles's Echo Park encampment found permanent housing after it was cleared. Almost half are missing, seven are dead. That's not a failure of homelessness policy. It's an example of the system working exactly as intended. Tracy is a co-founder of the L.A. Tenants Union, which you can find out more about by going to latenantsunion.org. Follow L.A. Tenants Union on Twitter, at L.A. Tenants Union. Tracy's first book, Abolish Rent, written with Leonardo Vilches, is forthcoming from Verso Books, so go to verso.com to find out more about that. Follow Tracy on Twitter at two underscore evils. That's T-W-O underscore evils. Find out more about Tracy at TracyRosenthal.com. And I know you're probably thinking, I'm not in L.A. What do their homeless issues have to do with me? Well, what's happening in L.A. is what's happening across the United States. If it's not already happening where you live, it will be soon. This is hell. In Los Angeles, the pandemic gave the unhoused a bit of a respite from brutal police crackdowns, offering them a brief glimpse of freedom, an opportunity to build community and find camaraderie amongst each other. Before the virus waned and the inevitable happened, the cruel inhuman policy toward homelessness reared its ugly head again. But that fleeting view of freedom may have sparked a movement that finally challenges the increasingly violent state response to homelessness. Here to help us have a better understanding of the unhoused in Los Angeles and what they are facing and what the unhoused are facing likely across the United States, organizer and author Tracy Rosenthal wrote the New Republic article, Inside L.A.'s Homeless Industrial Complex. Welcome to This Is Hell, Tracy. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. Tracy is a co-founder of the L.A. Tenants Union. You can find out more about the L.A. Tenants Union at latenantsunion.org and follow them on Twitter at L.A. Tenants Union. 
Tracy's first book, Abolish Rent, written with Leonardo Vilches, is forthcoming from Verso Books, so look for that in the near future. And you can follow Tracy on Twitter at the word two underscore evils, two underscore evils, and find out more about Tracy at tracyrosenthal.com. So you start your article writing about Gustavo Atzoy, who emigrated from Guatemala to Los Angeles at 17, where he was held in immigrant detention for nearly three weeks. On his first day free, he explored Echo Park Lake, 16 acres of grass, paths, and palm trees, an expansive body of water, a pristine view of the downtown skyline. Nearly 40 years later, now a U.S. citizen, Atzoy found himself heading back to the park, but now, as you explain, he was homeless, and we'll get to the circumstances in a moment. You had, uh, by the time Adzoi arrived in June 2020, around 60 people had already established themselves as residents of the park, living in tents on the west side's grassy incline. The pandemic had prompted the CDC to issue an unprecedented recommendation, allow unhoused people to remain wherever they are without recurring move-along orders or police sweeps. Park residents enjoyed a rare taste of stability and the freedom that comes from being left alone. Are the, well, here in Chicago, let's start there. Here in Chicago, homeless encampments have been attacked of late. They've been lit on fire. Of course, this is not unique to Chicago. This is happening all across the United States, unfortunately. But is there any evidence, Tracy, that you found that the pandemic caused not only lenience by law enforcement, but potentially more aggressive and violent acts against the homeless by those who are not in law enforcement. Had, did violence, just not from the cops, but just from the public, increase during the pandemic? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. I mean, I can say that for sure, because of the CDC guidance, um, which is sort of unprecedented in the history of homeless management, that you would have a policy that allows unhoused people to remain where they are. And I guess I should say of encampments that, you know, many studies and many interviews and unhoused people themselves talk about their preference for living together in public space rather than being isolated in shelters. They talk about their preference for having access to public restrooms, to transportation, uh, to the harm reduction of having a community around you. So like, I think first, just to say that, you know, there are reasons why people want to live together in space. The encampments are there for a reason and they, um, you know, they serve the function of a community and a support network and providing people with homes when they don't have an indoor place to live. Um, and so these refuges basically are um, in the context of in the context of cities that are being increasingly used for the accumulation of capital and not for you know places for people to live. Um, they're increasingly seen as um, and they're increasingly seen as, you know, uh, like an obstacle to that process. And they're associated um, and they're associated with a lack of safety, even though that is unproven. And I, I actually don't know uh, for certain whether we've seen vigilante violence increase over the course of the pandemic. But there are studies that show that 
unhoused people are more often the victims rather than the perpetrators of violence. So this idea that un, like that having an encampment in your community makes your community less safe is actually pure fiction. That's like part of the rhetoric that is being used to purge unhoused people from space. Um, and um, but yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned was is uh, public restrooms here in Chicago. They just announced that there's going to be a program for public restrooms, whether those public restrooms are for the homeless or whether they're just trying to uh, provide a service for tourists downtown because they can't find a public restroom in a restaurant somewhere uh, for tourism rather than for the homeless. Uh, but how much do you think public restrooms is just the you know, band-aid du jour, that this is the liberal response to homelessness. How much do you think that really addresses a concern and how much do you think that that's just a band-aid? Well, I mean, I think that that, I mean, people, like humans deserve access to bathrooms. Um, all humans, it is a human need to have access to, um, you know, relieve yourself wherever you are. And what we've seen in Los Angeles and what does happen across the country is that bathrooms are weaponized by police efforts and politicians um, that, you know, there's this amazing report by um, LA Can, which is an organization of unhoused organizers and unhoused organizing in Los Angeles. And they have this report called The Dirty Divide. And they talk about the ways that the state purposely withdraws trash services and bathrooms in order to produce the in order to produce a public health crisis that then the state solves with sweeps. So I, I would say that, you know, this is one of the demands um, in, you know, there's a coalition in LA called Services Not Sweeps and access to restrooms are um, an immense part of that. Um, I think, however, we should be like very considerate about when these restrooms are deployed and when they're not. Um, I mean, specifically in Los Angeles, the um, we have a park, Pershing Square, that in the design, like in the meeting minutes of its design, you can listen to politicians talk about removing bathrooms, how there would be no public bathrooms, and that people would have to use the semi-private spaces of, you know, nearby businesses, basically to prevent, like, as if that would prevent unhoused people from being in public space. And so um, I, my, my guess would be that public restrooms will be deployed as a way of managing where unhoused people can be. Um, however, I, I do think that, you know, like, people need access to bathrooms, they will use them wherever they are. And, and that is, um, it is a matter of human rights that we provide them for people who live outside. As for the reasons that Gustavo Atzoy, who you write about in your article, was returning to Echo Park, you explained he'd just been released after serving a year-long sentence in prison. He couldn't return to the home he'd once owned in, in Palmdale because he'd sold the deed to raise funds for a lawyer in his case. It was a hurried handshake deal, and the buyer had never fully paid him. Gripping his gold crucifix necklace, he got on his bicycle and rode to Echo Park Lake. He was, of course, afraid. He'd never been homeless before. So the homeless, as you know, are often blamed for their own situation, that they made decisions or choices leading to homelessness. When it comes to a situation like that of Gustavo Atzois with 
legal costs, incarceration, and what Atsoy sees as being ripped off. In your opinion, who or what should be held responsible? Or, or Tracy, is there a question of responsibility? Is that framework a distraction from a bigger conversation when it comes to homelessness? I mean, I think I would argue that homelessness is caused by systems of housing deprivation. Uh, and those systems include the, the our system of allocation, which turns housing into a product um, and, and is used to produce profit for a smaller and smaller class of people. And another system of housing deprivation is government policy that aligns with real estate interests, purposefully unhouses people. Um, and, I, and, and that those really are the systems that we should be pointing to and reflecting on the responsibility. I mean, I, I think for me, like writing about uh, Gustavo, you know, who's been a friend for years now, um, that I found his story, um, I mean, in a certain way, uh, Gustavo has been in every form of internment that the United States has invented to deal with, you know, undesirables and the poor. He's been in, um, he's been in immigrant detention, He's been imprisoned and he has been in the shelter system or the interim housing system, all three of which uh, I'm sort of arguing in this piece are the um, are the are 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 the are arms of the same system of of population control of containment. So to you, what explains why it's believed by the government, by the state that police actions are a proper or effective response to homelessness? I mean, well, I mean, it's hard to say like what precisely the state believes. I mean, I think that homelessness does create a crisis for the state because it can neither the cap for the capitalist state, I should say, it can neither fully solve the problem because to fully solve the problem of homelessness would mean to provide well-resourced public housing for all that who needed it and to do that would be to break the sort of bond between, you know, lack of housing and having to work or you're having to work in order to pay for shelter. And it would also sort of, um, and the way that housing is used as a disciplinary tool to force people into the wage is, is sort of, you know, that's the classic Marxist theory of primitive accumulation. But I would argue that it's ongoing in our inability to, provide public housing. Um, but that is like one, so the state fully can't solve the problem, but it also can't appear as if it's not trying, right? Like it, there, the way that homelessness has been framed as a, you know, uh, I, I think over time it has had many sort of media rebrands, um, from a sort of nuisance to a sort of misfortune to now I think we're in the sort of rise of the medicalized, um, maybe like the, the, the medicalized deficiency or like these, the pro like as if problems of mental health and addiction are the cause of homelessness, even though we know that that is not the case, that the majority of people who live outside are living outside because 
uh, they simply cannot afford rent. Um, and so like it, while it's true that we've gone through different phases of how we think and talk about homeless people, like the state has made different attempts over time to address this, like more or less successfully. Um, and, and I would argue that, you know, most recently um, in California, we've seen Gavin Newsom's attempt to uh, revive conservatorship laws, which basically allow them to jail an unhoused person against their will, make them into a ward of the state um, and submit them to forced treatment. Um, and, you know, all, all this using something that um, they're calling care courts, right? So in the, in, I think, you know, one of the things that we could talk about that I find so interesting is that most of these incredibly carceral and violent uh, responses to homelessness are happening within the context of liberal cities. So the liberal response is um, is services is the paternalism of services, uh, which are framed as on as for people's own good. Um, and I think that this has extended so far that um, you know conservativeship laws will li literally take somebody into custody for their own good. And there are many different kinds of schemes like this idea of service resistance that is like very popular in state rhetoric about the about um, unhoused people's relationship to going into shelters. And as if the, their resistance says more about you know, their mental health than the conditions of what's inside. So this kind of like medical turn is really being weaponized um, by liberal cities specifically to jail people for their own well-being. Um, and I'm also thinking here too of my friend Empty who lives outside who says, you know, like the, the services aren't for unhoused people. They're for housed people to feel like something is being done. Um, and that I think, I think their read is all, had, had really shaped, you know, the way that I looked at all of these policies um, and, you know, thought about how this system, like, what if this system is simply its effects, not the PR of its effects, but its act, its literal effects? Yeah, I couldn't help but think about uh, the idea of uh, humanitarian militarism and uh, how that was such a focus back in the late 90s and how this seems to be another version of liberalism being applied to policing, a kind of humanitarian policing, but it both constitute force against those who you are trying to supposedly help, which seems very contradictory. And you write that the Los Angeles Police Department and representatives of the mayor, the city attorney, and the council uh, district all took meetings with the new coalition of nearby home and business owners in the Echo Park area called Friends of Echo Park Lake. Ayman Ahmed, who moved to the park in the fall of 2019, said at the meeting, detractors didn't see their, as Ahmed described it, common humanity with unhoused people or a kitchen for people who are trying to cook who have nowhere to cook. They saw, again, citing Ahmed, dirty people. They don't count the same as them making their areas dirty. So is there a common humanity between the home and business owners and the homeless? Uh, what do local 
home and business owners share with the homeless when it comes to any common humanity? Why is it so difficult to find that common humanity? Yeah, I should just say, like, just to back up a bit and give some more context, right? So I'm talking specifically about one spectacular sweep of a long-standing encampment in a park in Echo Park Lake. Um, it maybe grew to about 100 people at its height, um, and people had been living there since before the pandemic started, since the fall of 2019. Um, and the kind of political conflict that I think that it really showed is, um, I mean, I think really gets to your question, which is, you know, who the state is aligning with as a quote unquote stakeholder for the policies that they invent um, and who is sort of cast out um, as basically, uh, you know, not even and not even ignored, but is treated as a literal obstacle um, to the practices and the policies that are um, that benefit that benefit real estate and uh, homeowners and business owners. So I would say that, you know, this is an instance where um, homeowners and business owners have collaborated, um, that the state collaborates with them for the goal of raising property values, of bringing rich people to the area, of um, courting real estate investment um, so that cities can grow, so that they can expand their tax bases. And this has made for um, an alliance of real estate and the state that um, I think Sam Stein very um, eloquently calls the real estate state. And um, I think what I'm trying, what I say there that, um, you know, the way that police politicians um, from the mayor's office, from the city council's office, all they all took meetings with homeowners in the area. And the entire time, the community of unhoused residents at Echo, Echo Park had been requesting the same treatment and they were refused it. Um, so I think, you know, in the treatment of the unhoused, um, this, it, it's not only that the, it's not only that they are ignored, but that the state actively treats them as an impediment to the, to the goal of economic growth. And, and that that allegiance is, I think, also what draws in the police state, that in order to carry out the will of real estate and to protect investments, like protect speculative investments from risk, um, that the real estate state will draw in the police state to do that work. Um, and that I think is really shown in what becomes the spectacular eviction of this unhoused encampment at Echo Park Lake, um, you know, which cost the city $2 million, used 700 cops, arrested nearly 200 people. Um, and basically to, in the words of the homeowners, return the park, um, which had been uh, in their view taken over. Um, and, and this sort of, you know, I'm thinking here too of um, in Neil Smith's really famous, The Urban Frontier, um, the last chapter is 
dedicated to this idea of revanchism, which is that sort of vicious and reactionary violence, basically, by which real estate homeowners, business owners um, will try to claim, reclaim the city um, and portray the poor as having, um, and portray the poor as having invaded the city that belongs to them. Um, and in this case, the state really mediates that conflict on the side of business owners, homeowners, real estate, and, and uses the police state to do that. And you cite Atzoi recalling in a UCLA report on the raid that eventually happens that uh, tears down the encampment that is in, at Echo Lake Park. Uh, you write that he states they were protesting so peacefully, the people who were protesting. And what did the police do? Sent their hundreds and hundreds in, arresting them, putting them in jail, shooting at them. You report... In the morning, the last of the residents, including Atzoi and Ahmed, awoke to find themselves completely fenced inside the park with a chain link enclosure. In an Instagram live stream, they compared their surroundings to an open air prison. After one last night, those who remained were threatened with arrest. Atzoi walked out carrying what possessions he could. Ahmed was removed in handcuffs and all 182 people were arrested and 16 journalists detained. As you said, the entire operation cost $2 million. So what happened to the people who were homeless and living in that encampment? Were they, you know, entered into the city's interim housing system or did they simply find another place to sleep, but without the camaraderie and support and the support system that they were enjoying at Echo Lake Park? Yeah, so you can see, you know, as the piece go on goes on, I really talk about what happened, um, the record of what happened to people. And, you know, at first, the, there is a city council member who refers to the eviction as the greatest housing event in the history of the city. Um, and he's citing this number from the Los Angeles Homelessness Authority, um, Homeless Services Authority, that uh, 180 people were moved into interim housing. But what we see over time is, is first of all, this simply isn't true for various reasons, but what we see over time is as time goes on, more and more people leave these placements. They go back to the living outside. Um, some of them die at the year anniversary, seven of the resident of the former residents of this encampment had died. Um, and only 7%, so something like 13 people, managed to get into permanent housing. So this process of, um, you know, these service offers that, um, you know, these offers of housing that were made to people um, that, you know, residents of the park recognized as the bait and switch to get them to leave, that is, in fact, the purpose that they served. Um, they got people out of the park. They were used to justify the use of the police in saying, you know, well, we offered everyone housing, but the result of that system was more instability for the people who entered it. More, a, a lot of people experienced the trauma of being evicted from that system. They lost their autonomy within a system that denies you, um, that denies you, uh, denies you freedom of movement. You're basically locked in for half the day, um, among other restrictions. And um, 
And I think that, you know, it's important, you know, when I'm saying that, like, they they compare their surroundings to an open air prison, I think for me, it's really important for us to understand that kind of like system of rightlessness that exists for the un unhoused people, both indoors, like when they enter an interim housing system and outside. So when they're outside, unhoused people are subject to a host of criminalization, which, you know, is basically a dance between constitutionality and criminalization that cities will simply legislate um, uh, inhumane laws that then have to be, you know, um, that have to be injuncted by the courts. But, um, and then in, and, but, and yet this system of rightlessness is produced outside and they're subject to an incredible amount of policing surveillance um, and inst instability um, and violence by the cops. And then inside, um, the treatment is the same, right? That they are subjected to lack of autonomy. They don't have the same rights as a tenant would have. Um, they, um, they, they don't have tenant rights. They're entered into these interim housing programs as participants in programs and rather than tenants. Um, they can't have guests, pets, or personal belongings more than uh, fit in one trash bag. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, really just showing that that system of rightlessness is, is total, that to be unhoused is to fall outside of rights as we, as of human rights as we understand them. Do you think housing services need to be punitive to get any services for the homeless at all? Is that the political predicament we are in right now, that there may be those who want to genuinely help out the homeless, but the only way that you can get anything passed, the only way that politicians will allow for any kind of services for the homeless is to have a measure of uh, punitive punishment for those who are involved, who, who those who are homeless. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an interesting question, right? And this really comes from like a history of how we deal with public benefits, right? Like it, in turn, I'm thinking here of um, the, uh, and the production of this concept of like an undeserving poor. So most social services are made humiliating um, as a disciplinary tool. Um, and those things have been basically connected. You know, I, I mean, the first shelter system in Los Angeles was built in the city's jail. Like that is just the history of homeless management we have, but that, um, that, disciplinary apparatus being attached to public benefits that is broader i mean that's that is true of welfare um it's true of public housing it's true of um it's true of many public benefits as benefits had been sort of separated from entitlements uh, along the lines of racing class um and so i think that that is like the, your question is like uh, in in some ways that is it's a it's a question about, you know, the American, uh, the American system of social wage um, and how we imagine the social wage um, and what we think it should do or can do. Um, 
and like the ways that it has been, um, you know, weaponized and denied to people um, and used as a disciplinary tool um, for people failing to failing to succeed at a capitalist system that is that is for which it, in which it is impossible to succeed. Um, so I think that's one answer to the question. I think the other is to say, um, you know, like one of the things that I'm interested in is again, rather than asking like, uh, like rather than asking about the state's feelings, simply say like, what is it doing? Like these programs are, these carceral programs are so expensive. There's, you know, $70 million a year for encampment sweeps. The shelter, their shelter beds in Los Angeles are, I think the budget is $700 million. Um, the, I write about um, tiny homes and safe sleep sites. You know, tiny homes are these prefabricated sheds that are sleep to people and are smaller than the American Corrections Association standards of a prison cell for one. Um, and safe sleep sites are basically tents that are fenced. Um, and subject to 24 hour surveillance. Um, and these, both of these programs cost $3,000 per person per month. So there is an immense amount of resources being devoted to the policing apparatus, which like takes 54% of LA's discretionary budget. It's about a third of the entire city's budget. And um, to these, soft prisons to interim housing to um containing people and so i i guess i would say that um you know th this system has not been invented to help people i do think that there are people working within this system there are people within lhasa who like i cannot name their names because they um would like to remain anonymous and they you know, they work within the homeless services agency knowing all of these problems, but simply like do want to help people. This isn't to say that individuals, right, like can't do not feel at, like that, that individuals um, can't make any kind of interventions or can't um, or, you know, that every single person in this system is bent on the immiseration of unhoused people. However, it is to say that like the our budget priorities um, and our um, our budget priorities really betray the purpose of the program, which is the which is clearance and containment. Because, as you point out, this is far more expensive to do this kind of policing strategy than it would be to actually address the concerns of the homeless. We are speaking with organizer and author Tracy Rosenthal, who wrote the New Republic article inside L.A.'s homeless industrial complex. Look for uh, Tracy's first book, Abolish Rent, which will be forthcoming from Verso. Tracy is a co-founder of the L.A. Tenants Union. You can find out more about that organization by going to latenantsunion.org or following them on Twitter at L.A. Tenants Union. And you can follow Tracy on Twitter at 2, the word 2, underscore evil, evils, sorry. Find out more about Tracy at Tracy Rosenthal. Dot com. And you write that former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, a proponent of broken windows policies, he said broken windows policies target, quote, problem people and problem places. And you explain academics George L. Ke Kelling and James Q. Wilson argued that police 
should focus less on lowering the crime rate and more on producing a sense of safety by maintaining public order. Obstacles to that order, they wrote, were not violent people nor necessarily criminals, but disreputable or obstreperous or unpredictable people. The unhoused former New York City Police Commissioner William Bratton said in 2003 are the first signs of disorder. Quote, the homeless take over a portion of the park. Drug dealers follow. Drug dealers beget violence. It then begins to affect the whole business area and businesses begin to die. So a sense of safety, public order without businesses beginning to die is is broken windows about giving the appearance of safety more than providing security and is broken windows for the homeless. I guess this is my more important question. Is broken windows for the homeless out of sight, out of mind? Is the police strategy and the state strategy about forcing the homeless to go unseen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, that's a great question. And I think just, um, yeah, the reason why I'm talking about broken windows in this article is I'm saying I, I wanted to sort of figure out what is the policing strategy that is being used that puts unhoused people as basically, a, you know, a, like a canary in the coal mine of crime, right? So you have William Bratton, who is the police chief who moves from New York to Los Angeles and back to New York. Um, as the proponent of this policy called broken windows, which we are still living with to this day. Um, And under this view of policing, um, it doesn't matter what the crime rate is. It matters if basically rich white residents feel safe. Um, And when we use policing to do that, right, we give an incredible amount of discretion to police officers and we're policing people and places as Bloomberg says, rather than like events. Um, And I think that, so it's really, I think it's really important to situate the rise in policing um, of unhoused people in this sort of broader project that cities are engaged in of broken windows of criminalizing of criminalizing the poor um and so um i'm I'm trying to remember the rest of your question um because i just oh yeah i i think so then in the context of um in the context of broken windows um cities are relying on police officers to produce this sense of this amorphous sense of safety, um, which is really a mitigation of risk for, you know, real estate investment. And I, and I refer in this piece to the police as the shock troops for investment. And I think that that sort of, that that process is really clear um, within broken windows. And we also, we often talk about, you know, the racist legacy of broken windows. It is most certainly racist. Um, and there have been many studies that have showed, you know, the discretionary power allowed by police, um, means that, you know, broken windows is a dragnet, um, for 
black people, people of, and people of color. But also, and more maybe more specifically, uh, broken windows is classist, and the un and unhoused people have always been a primary target of this policing strategy. Um, and I think that um, you know, for all the and of course that um, of course it's important to remember, right, that those two things go hand in hand. In the Los Angeles, eight with something like eight percent of the population are black, and thirty percent of our unhoused population is black. So this sort of um, the imbrication of racism and classism in policing practices that make unhoused people the target is really clear from the beginning of Broken Windows ideology and remains to this day. And you point out that of the laws regarding uh, sitting, lying, or stand or eating in public, which have all been made illegal, as you point out, in the first 10 months of the Safer Cities policy, a new reform that the city of Los Angeles had come up with. The LAPD made 7,428 arrests and issued 10,342 citations in Skid Row, many for jaywalking and uh, others for violations of the Section 41.18 of the law, uh, 1968 Municipal Code, that makes it a misdemeanor subject to fines or imprisonment to sit, lie, or sleep in a in or upon any street, sidewalk, or other public way. And you mentioned that uh, these are the kinds of, uh, you know, unconstitutional laws that are being enforced upon the homeless. You cite uh, Judge Kim McLean Wardlaw writing, because there is substantial and undisputed evidence that the number of homeless persons in Los Angeles far exceeds the number of available shelter beds, criminalizing the unavoidable act of sitting, lying, or sleeping at night while being involuntarily homeless constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. And you add in 2018, the circuit court's landmark Martin versus Boise uh, decision ruled that anti-camping ordinances in cities throughout the country were unenforceable on the same grounds. So why isn't the Constitution being upheld when it comes to cruel and inhumane punishment of the homeless? Can city governments and their police forces simply refuse to recognize certain constitutional rights that they don't want to recognize and have policies of breaking them when it comes to the homeless. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, basically, as I said, it is Los Angeles. The Los Angeles policing strategy and, the you know, um, legislative strategy is make the laws police the police unhoused people until you uh, are subject to a constitutional injunction. And that is how they... Um, that is how they invent and uh, that that's basically their strategy for dealing with unhoused people. Um, I think it's a little bit more, I mean, and there are so many ways in which laws that criminalize uh, being home, like the condition of being homeless are like run against the constitution. One is that, you know, they criminalize things that everyone does. Um, another is that, you know, you can't really have, you have a enshrined right to property. Um, and, you know, so the 4118 is the law that says you can't sleep in public, but yet you can't sit in public, but yet I can sit in public, but someone who maybe looks to a police officer as if they don't have another place to be, can't sit in public. Um, and then like 5611 was a law that was invented to basically be, empower the police to take unhoused people's belongings if they had so-called too much stuff, which was then ruled unconstitutional 
Um, and now they've basically reinvented 4118 and said, oh, it's not a blanket for everyone. It's just at these specific areas, right? Um, so they're basically, you know, there, there are so many ways in which that the state produces a state of rightlessness for unhoused people over and over and over again. But then I will say that one of the reasons why I'm writing about that constitutionality here is because also something even more sinister is happening, which is that these infor those two um, landmark decisions um, in Jones versus New York and Martin versus Boise are about tying anti-camping enforcement to the availability of shelter. They don't simply say it is cruel and unusual punishment to ticket someone, arrest someone, jail someone for sleeping outside, period. They say it's cruel and unusual to do that if there isn't another place for people to go. So what cities have done is rather than <laughs> rather than accept the injunction against their violation of human rights, they have they have dis they have expanded the shelter system. They have invested an amount immense amount of resources and time in providing those quote unquote alternatives. Of course, those as we know of especially congregate shelters. These are some of the worst places on earth. Um, they are known for noxious living conditions. There's no privacy. They're um, really famous for not only COVID, but tuberculosis outbreaks. Um, and city, like cities have invested in the shelter system as a way of legalizing enforcement. Um, and so that is the... Um, that is kind of the legal environment that I'm pointing to here. And um, it, basically in order to say that that production of rightlessness is the point. You also point out that uh, though homelessness is as old as the country is, the interventions of Reagan's administration, since upheld by bipartisan consensus, at once cemented it as a feature of American life and shaped what the government is prepared to do about it. From 1981 to 1989, the housing and urban development budget was slashed by almost 80 percent, turning public and subsidized housing into the housing of last resort, allocated not by eligibility, but by lottery. So tax cuts led to homelessness. Do you believe Americans are fine with that? If it means they pay less in taxes, they do not mind if other Americans are homeless? Well, I mean, it's funny to ask about Americans more generally, right? Because this is tax cuts for the incredibly wealthy. This is the removal of the top tax bracket, you know, that used to be taxed like above 60 and is now taxed at something like 20 to 30. So I don't think that, you know, I think that there, you're right in that the right wing has successfully built an anti-tax coalition. Um, and without sort of recognizing, you know, and, and um, but I, I'm not sure how clear it is. Um, I, it is true that I'm not sure how clear it is to people the way that government policy itself contributes to the crisis of homelessness. Um, 
The other thing that I would point out is, as you write, throughout the 1980s and 90s, seeking a bulwark against the undeserving poor, policymakers seeded disciplinary requirements into public benefits. So all forms of welfare bloomed into workfare. Now aid recipients must jump through the paternalistic uh, hoops of monthly requalifications, mandatory drug testing, and more, while requirements for job training or sober living have diminished within interim housing. Arbitrary restrictions and lock-ins persist. Coercion remains inseparable from the state provision of a social need. That said, you know, the Reagan era was supposed to be about shrinking government interference in the everyday lives of Americans. How would you describe the difference in government interference in the daily lives of the rich as opposed to the poor under Reaganism? Is Reaganism small government for the wealthy, but big brother for the homeless? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting way to put it. I know that, you know, for instance, Ruth Wilson Gilmore has a really beautiful, like a really elegant understanding of you know the of what she calls the shadow state um and so the idea of a leaner state didn't actually produce less government what it produced is a less accountable government that is more um intricately involved with the nonprofit and private sector um so it I think that, you know, in, in the context of um, policies for the homeless, what I talk about as the homeless industrial complex is really the sort of shadow state mirror um, to the abandonment of, of unhoused people by the federal government. And so what balloons is this kind of Baroque system of public-private partnerships, of, um, you know, in Los Angeles, all of these interim housing locations are managed by nonprofits. They are funded through grants. They, um, there's a host of sort of complicated bureaucracy that goes into these stop gaps. Um, and so I, I would say that that, um, that that kind of shadow state, right, that is, you know, some people refer to as the nonprofit industrial complex is really the result of um, the withdrawal of the of, of the withdrawal of like, you know, of this withdrawal of the state um, at its face and then in its in its wake, in its shadow is the you know, expansion of a state apparatus that simply, um, you know, uh, I'm sorry to use this metaphor, but like, like a human centipede, like enwraps all of these other um, projects within it. So just uh, one last question for you, uh, Tracy, and I just want to point out that far more, uh, there's far more to this article on the steps that activists like Tracy and the L.A. Tenants Union are taking. So you must go and read this article, read more about what happened to the Echo Park Lake uh, encampment, as well as what is being done for the people in Los Angeles, what tiny incremental steps have been won, but how the bigger system is still a huge burden on the homeless. you got to check out Tracy's writing again, the New Republic article inside L.A.'s in homeless industrial complex. One last question for you, Tracy, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. 
The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, unhoused people's comfort is a moral hazard. If the state provided housing for all who needed it, permanent, unsurveilled, well-resourced public housing, it would undermine the capitalist dictate that you must work for a wage in order to pay for the basic human need of shelter. So, Tracy, how real is the threat effective to, uh, to of effectively addressing homelessness to capitalism? Can ending homelessness end capitalism? I mean, I I would I mean, as a tenant organizer, right? And my definition of tenant is anyone who doesn't control their own housing, anyone who inhabits but doesn't own. And as a tenant organizer, that includes unhoused tenants. Um, tenants who rent, uh, people, incarcerated people, they also don't control their own housing. Like as a tenant organizer, I absolutely without a doubt believe that to solve homelessness, to really solve the crisis of homelessness, to really solve the crisis of, to really produce housing as a human right would, is, is one in the same as the struggle against capitalism. When does your book Abolish Rent come out? I think 2023. Okay, I'm really looking forward to it. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Me too, thank your, you so much. Your article inside LA's uh, Homeless Industrial Complex is just fascinating. People can follow Tracy on Twitter at the word two underscore evils and find out more about Tracy at tracyrosenthal.com. But uh, count on us bugging you next year when Abolish Rent comes out because we would love to have you back on the show. Please do. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Tracy, and enjoy the rest of your week. You too. Thank Bye. you. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. I completely forgot that Tracy Rosenthal has a new book out called Abolish Rent. It's supposed to be coming out this year. She said October 2023. That was back in May of 2022. Publication dates always shift, and they usually are much later than they actually are originally intended to be. So uh, I'll get in touch with Tracy this week and see if uh, we can uh, schedule a date for her to be on the show if they have a publication date for her new book. Again, that's called Abolish Rent, and it will be coming out this year. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell if what you just heard from Tracy Rosenthal on the homeless industrial complex. If that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding, or made you feel like you actually learned something, or to realize that yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live this week on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Normally our Patreon podcast happens on Thursdays, but this week, because of the new year, because of issues we had over the holidays with weather, it is happening on Friday. So tune in for that. And also I want to thank again the people at Detroit's Kennedy Prince, who have sent us even more prints over the holidays. And special thanks to Mimi Machete, who uh, was one of the people who told us, and uh, as well as uh, Anthony Kennedy told us that, uh, you know, they don't 
get anything, you know, it's, the, the show doesn't make them happy as much as it get, makes them informed. And so Mimi told us that what we should say is if the show is in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something when we are asking you to be a Patreon subscriber. So again, thank you for Mimi Machete for straightening us out. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, we rarely fulfill our New Year's resolutions. We never actually do what we say we're determined to do. So what did you do in 2022 that you've resolved not to do? In 2023. The problem with that question is the not to do part, which leads to a whole bunch of people playing with double negatives in their responses, which really confused me yesterday on the show. It gets a little tricky. It does get a little tricky. Let's see if John T. was able to navigate it. They say, (laughs) hatch all my chickens before they are counted. What a mess that was. (laughs) That's a good one. And we have one more from SLS who came in under the wire as they have done before. They say, let the demon on my butt talk me into a hell rage. Oops. I think he means a hell ride. That's what that's yeah. what Wesley's saying. Yeah, he would, say, he's definitely saying hell he ride. He would say his negative schizophrenic episodes would put him on a hell ride. So at the This Is Hell Holiday Office party that happened a couple of weeks ago, uh, past producer on the show, Drew Colglazier, showed up, uh, Dan, and he gave me a drawing by Wesley Willis. That's way cool. I'll bet that's worth something. Yeah, it's very They're beautiful. Cool. They're stunning. Yeah, and so yeah, check yeah. this out. This is a really great story. He told me that the people who do have his artwork right now, they don't want to make money off his mm. artwork posthumously. They mm. kind of feel scummy yeah, about that. Because sure. apparently some people were, as mo- immediately after Wesley died, his paintings on eBay were going mm-hmm. from 600 to like $3,000, $4,000 a piece. So apparently there is an Illinois Institute of Technology uh, or there was a professor who would allow Wesley to audit all of his drafting classes. That's cool. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's really nice. And so that's how Wesley learned how to draw buildings. Mm -hmm. So he did a drawing of this guy's house the professor's house who gave him, let him audit these classes. Mm-hmm. So Wesley has this beautiful drawing of this professor's house. Some At some point in his life, he trades it for something and it ends up in somebody else's hands. And uh, this guy realizes that this should be back in this professor's hands. He should own this drawing that Wesley did of his house now that Wesley has passed away. So this guy gets the drawing to the professor the professor is so grateful that he gives him a stack of old Wesley drawings and says, I don't care what you do with these as long as you don't sell them. You can trade them. So uh, the uh, this uh, person has uh, given this drawing to Drew Colglazier. Drew Colglazier, who worked on the show for years, uh, he was like, Chuck Mertz needs to have this Wesley Willis drawing. So he gives me this Wesley Willis drawing. And I said, well, I don't have anything to trade to you. And he goes, oh, don't worry. I'm taking this is just for you as a gift. I know you're not going to sell it. Uh, but in order for me to get this, I had to promise this guy that he would get him a sculpture by... Ricky Willis, Wesley's still surviving brother. Oh, I had no idea. He's a sculptor? No idea either. He has many of the same problems that Wesley had, mm. went through many of the same horrible experiences as mm. Wesley described him to me. 
Uh, so uh, yeah, he's uh, he's still alive. He's still around, and he's making sculptures. And um, I'll get the name of the uh, gallery where you can find his sculptures right now because yeah. they're still for sale. I'd love uh, to but see I can't them. remember. Yeah. So there you go. Crazy story. No cash was exchanged whatsoever. Nobody profited from Wesley's demise on it, and we all ended up with beautiful art. That sounds pretty good. Seems like maybe like art and drugs benefit from that arrangement. Just yes. take cash out of the equation. Could be, could be. I don't think so. I didn't hear anything about that. But yes, let's take let's take money out of the equation. Yeah. Put drugs into it. It makes Just, sense. Yeah. It's a beautiful drawing of uh, a boat, and there's two white people and two black people on it, and a crazy cloudy weird skyline behind them. It's very cool, and I cannot wait to get it framed and hang it in my house. Yeah, that's a treat. So the person with our uh, favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But again, we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. And as we only have about six entries so far this week, it's a week for an easy win we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week we'll have more of your answers uh actually i just said that dan what is the next interview we will be playing here on the best of 22 as selected by our listeners with a little help from our staff i could tell you that we will wrap up the best of this is hell 2022 edition by playing our interview with journalist roberto lovato who wrote the alta article the gentrification of consciousness on the coming psychedelic industrial complex which threatens to strip hallucinogenic drugs of their historic and religious significance i am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Thanks again to everybody for listening and supporting us throughout 2022. And we look forward to having a full year of learning more and more stuff with you. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing today's show. This is Hell Office Hours Return this Wednesday and happen every Wednesday throughout 2023 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, beginning around 6 p.m. each week. The only time that we won't be doing uh, office hours this year will be when I am out of town on my normal summer vacation in August. But otherwise, rain or shine or sleet or radioactive fallout, we will be holding This Is Hell office hours every Wednesday throughout 2023. Drop by, have a beer with me, or if you are not a drinking type, you know, have something else. I don't care. Nobody else does either. Uh, people there just aren't that kind of a dick. If you do drop by, I will give you a free book. It'll be great. That's our weekly meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. This is Hell Office Hours, which start around 6 p.m. each and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. We hope to see you there, and I believe a member of Germany's Bundestag will be joining us this evening. Unbelievably. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio so clearly and sadly. Noam's gone insane. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>